Hi, everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series, Israel's Anointing. We have been trying to bring you biblical insight into God's heart and purpose for Israel. But I think today you're going to get a glimpse into his heart and purpose for the nations. Today is Episode 8, Pre-Islamic Arabia. Now, this episode is going to require us to pay a little bit more attention as we begin to track and trace some of the descendants of Abraham's family in the Middle East. I believe before we start moving into Isaac and his son Jacob and start bringing this series to a close, it's important we pause here and try to get a general idea of how the Middle East was shaping up during and after the time of Ishmael, who happens to be a key person in the forming of the Arab nations. And since those nations played a key role in Israel's history, identity, and destiny, and still do, it's important to have a general idea of how things evolved over time. Now, for Christians, when we read the Bible, we need to remember something very important, that we actually find ourselves in the middle of a family story. There is centuries of family history, family conflict, and even sibling rivalry that we are reading through. No family is perfect, not even Abraham's. And unlike us, God pulls back the curtain on his, exposing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Whether it's family discussions and quarrels we read about, or family rebellion is told through the prophets, or even just family division. The Bible has a lot of ammunition, both in the Torah and in the prophets, and it can help shape how we view his family. And when it comes to Ishmael and Isaac, the Arabs and the Jews, well, both lines of descendants have made mistakes. However, what's amazing to me is that all throughout the Bible, God keeps the lives of Abraham's children and their descendants, Ishmael, Isaac, and his wife Keturah and their children. He keeps them all deeply intertwined. He is definitely in the details of this story, its beginning and its end. And his hand is still moving over the course of history in an effort to bring his family back together again, as you'll see at the end of this episode. But to better understand all of that, we have to try to get a bit of a picture of this family and how they did shape the Middle East. So we're going to start going through some of the names of people and also some of the names of different cities. And if you want to get a map and try to follow along, I strongly encourage that or try to pull one up online. I'm going to start with Abraham's brothers. He had two that we know of, Nahor and Haran, both of whom were also from Ur, which is ancient Iraq. Now, Nahor, he ultimately settled in a place called Haran, not to get the name confused with his brothers, which is located in southwest Turkey. And through his grandson, Aram, A-R-A-M, came a people called the Arameans. Now, in the Bible, Aram was the Hebrew designation for the nation of Syria. So the Arameans mentioned in the Bible are Syrians. So you see that part of the world starting to take shape. Now, Abraham's other brother, Haran, he stayed in Ur, and he had a son named Lot. And Lot traveled with Abraham to Canaan and eventually settled in a city called Sodom. Well, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, both of the daughters of Lot, whose husbands were now dead, 
in an effort to preserve the lineage of their father, whose wife was now dead, found themselves with child by their father. We can hardly approve of their actions, yet their desperation must have been very real. The firstborn bore a son and called him Moab, and he became the father of what is called the Moabites. And the younger daughter, she gave birth to Ben-Ami, and he became the father of the Ammonites. And they gradually spread over eastern Jordan and ruled that territory. In fact, the ancient capital was located in what is now modern-day Amman, Jordan, named after the Ammonites. So you see that part of the Middle East taking shape, the area of Jordan. And then we have Abraham, and he had Ishmael and Isaac. And we're going to cover Isaac at another time. When it comes to Ishmael, we know he was blessed by God, married an Egyptian woman, and had 12 sons. And those sons eventually took wives, had children, and through these children formed tribes that made up the nations that dwelt from Havilah to Shur and from Egypt to Assyria. So quite a big area. Well, where exactly is Shur and Havilah? Well, some say Shur begins in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula and Havilah is in ancient Iraq, while others identify Shur as the wilderness area between Beersheba in the Negev desert of southern Israel and Egypt and Havilah as the eastern coast of Africa along the Red Sea where today we have Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Djibouti, Africa all of which sit directly across from Yemen. Well, seeing that Ishmael took an Egyptian wife, this location seems more likely. But to clarify Havilah, for those of you who are curious, Havilah appears in two separate bloodlines of people. First, the descendants of Noah's son Ham, which would explain the location in Africa, and second, the descendants of Noah's son Shem, which would explain the Arabia connection. Either way, Ishmael's descendants, his sons, found themselves part of Arabia, which at that time covered a much larger territory than what we know the Arabian Peninsula to be today. They were not the sole tribes in the Arabian desert. Other tribes emerged from other sources. But they became known as Ishmaelites. Now Abraham also had six sons through his wife Keturah and sent them east, they too form nomadic tribes in southeast Canaan in northwest Arabia in an area that became known as Midian. And Midian is sandwiched along two bodies of water across from the Sinai Peninsula, the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea. And those people became known as Midianites. Now, the Bible often uses these two names, Ishmaelites and Midianites interchangeably to describe the same people group. So it seems that at some point these two groups of people became one people, even living in the land of Midian. They formed tribes and clans, and then they spread out throughout the region. So you see the area now from Egypt all the way through Arabia taking shape. So you've got the northern area with Syria, southwest Turkey, and that whole region of Iraq, and now you've seen Jordan take shape, and now Egypt and the surrounding area of Arabia going north. 
Now, years later, Ishmael's brother Isaac would have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau would also leave his family and establish the kingdom of Edom. And Edom was located south of eastern Jordan, south of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And his area was located between what's called the Arabah, which is the desert wilderness to the west, and the Arabian desert to the south and east. And most of its former territory is now divided between present-day southern Israel and Jordan. But in your Bible, for example, the cities of Bozrah and Petra were notable cities in Edom. When the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, for example, controlled the land of Canaan, the kingdoms of Ammon, Moab, and Edom all ruled east of the Jordan. Do you have a bit of a picture? Now Esau not only had several wives, but he also married Ishmael's daughter, Mahalath. So he married a cousin. So you can now see tribes starting to even merge together. Esau's descendants would become known as Edomites, with one of his descendants being the one and only Herod the Great. Now, because they were all close relatives, the Israelites were forbidden by God to hate the Edomites. Deuteronomy 23.7. However, the Edomites regularly attacked Israel and many wars were fought as a result. Stories that involve King Saul and King David, for example. The Edomites were a mighty people, but they were also a very proud people. So much so that God pronounced judgments on them through his prophets like Ezekiel and Obadiah and promised to extinguish their line. And that came true. They were eventually conquered by the Nabataeans, which was an Arab nomadic people who controlled the trade routes, and so they had to flee their cities. They moved over to southern Israel to the Negev Desert. The Negev was then renamed to Edomia after the Edomites, and they lived there as Bedouins in the desert. Now, years later, an Edomite named Herod the Great rose to power before the start of the first century. The family conflict would continue to rear its ugly head. In this case, the seed of promise that was coming through Isaac and through his son Jacob was about to be made manifest in Jesus of Nazareth, who was about to come on the scene. So the line of faith was about to come face to face with the line of the flesh that came from Esau, which included Ishmael through marriage, manifesting in the family of Herod. Do you now see how contentious it was during the time of Christ? As history played out, Herod's son would be the Herod who killed John the Baptist and to whom Jesus had nothing to say at his trial. Herod's grandson was the Herod who was eaten by worms in Acts 12.23. And Herod's great-grandson was a man called Agrippa, who heard Paul's case in Acts 25, who died in the year A.D. 100 without children. And after that, the line of the Edomites disappeared, just as God said it would. And today, the population of Jordan is 94% Arabs, as various tribes moved in when the Edomites left. So tribes and clans formed and settled throughout the Middle East. 
but they were all interrelated in some way. They were not necessarily a unified or homogenous group of people, but rather consisted of a number of different tribes and clans whose affiliations and traditions could differ. From the times of the Bible leading up to the eve of Islam, so to speak, in the 7th century, the influence of major empires throughout the years was changing the Arab world. A polytheistic culture began to emerge. All of these areas, you have to understand, were part of heavily traveled trade routes, which often brought vassals from great empires through their lands, which influenced the people there in a variety of ways. And so although monotheism, monotheism was definitely present in the beginning of Arabia, polytheism took hold in many areas. For example, just as early Israel was sandwiched between Egypt and ancient Babylon, so too was Arabia sandwiched between ruling empires over the years. At one point, it was the Byzantine and Sasanian Persian empires. And when that happened, the Arab Lakhmid kingdom of northeastern Arabia allied itself with the Sasanian Persians, who were primarily polytheistic, while the people of the northwestern, uh, while the people of northwestern Arabia, functioned as a client state to the Byzantine and eastern Roman Empire, who were mostly Christians. So you can see diversity taking place in the Middle East. Ruling empires dictated much of the worship in the Middle East over the years. As a result the population of Arabia and the Middle East was evolving, with different people living out different lives from each other. Some Arabs were nomads who lived in tents and moved around, while others lived in developed cities. And depending on where you lived, depended on what you worshipped. The Arabian goddess of the sun, Shams, was prevalent, as was the worship of the god of the moon, Rudah, sometimes considered the father of Allah. They also worshipped Baal of the ancient Canaanite religion. And then there was the Arabian goddess Alat, who was the goddess of fertility. They all have a goddess of fertility. This goddess played a major role in Arabian worship and is found in many of their rock, many of their rock carvings. Some gods were popular in northern Arabia, while others were popular in southern. And like in so many cultures, animal sacrifice played a major role in their rites. Shrines were also built, making pilgrimage an important event. Pilgrimages were called Hajj, which is just what it's called today in Islam. They also had their superstitions, like the ghost-like figures called jinns that they claim would hang around abandoned ruins and dark places. Some of the groups practiced divination and other things related to the occult, and so Arabia and the Middle East looked much different than how Islam has made it look today. However, despite all of that, Monotheism was still common in certain areas, just different from region to region. For example, Zoroastrianism came on the scene in Persia and became one of the oldest monotheistic and dualistic religions founded. A little like Islam, it was founded by a prophet, only this prophet was named Zoroaster and became the official religion of Persia from 600 B.C., to 650 A.D., a thousand years. Most of what is known about Zoroaster comes from the Avesta, a collection of Zoroastrian religious scriptures. Like Muhammad, 
Zoroaster had a divine vision of a supreme being after which he began teaching followers to worship a single god called Ahura Mazda, which means wise lord. And it became the supreme god in the ancient Iranian religion. Monotheism was also evident in the Arabian Peninsula. Mecca, for example, in southwest Saudi Arabia was more polytheistic, while Medina, a little further north, housed a lot of Jewish communities. These are the two most holy cities of Islam today, Mecca and Medina. Mecca is where Muhammad was born, and Medina, well, it was originally a Jewish city called Yathrib, long before the time of Muhammad. Yathrib is a genuine Arabic name that can be found in old South Arabian inscriptions, while Medina is not. Therefore, whoever settled in Yathrib and gave it its non-Arabic name of the Medina or the city were originally Aramaic speakers from elsewhere. Now, according to Islamic history, Muhammad left his hometown of Mecca, in which his anti-pagan diatribes had aroused opposition, and he left it for Medina, the native city of his mother. He was supposedly invited there by neighboring tribes who were influenced by the monotheism of their Jewish neighbors, yet had no wish of joining their faith, thus becoming the first of the Arab tribes to grasp the unifying potential of Islam. Using Yathrib, Medina, as the launching pad for the Quran and the religion of Islam, may explain the appearance of biblical stories in the Quran, often significantly altered and distorted, but reflecting Muhammad's dependence upon Jewish teachers for history, and ironically enough, displaying an overarching Jewish influence on Islam. The Quran even kept the name Yathrib in its writings. Well, once Muhammad gained a following, he mounted an assault on Mecca, conquered it, and revolutionized Arabian warfare. And it wasn't just Medina that housed Jewish communities. Yemen appears to have also had a period of monotheism flourishing through the influence of Judaism and other independent forms. In fact, in 1901, a young German Jew set off on a journey in search to search out his authentic ancestry. And to his shock and surprise, after a break of a thousand years, there was a tangible sign of the existence of a Yemenite Jewish community. It seemed as if the world's most authentic Jew, who had lived completely isolated from any foreign influence, had finally been found. And when Israel became a state in 1948, there were about 55,000 Jews living in Yemen. Today, there are 50. This goes to show that some of Abraham's descendants held on to their identity over the centuries as a people who worshipped the God of Abraham, whether it was Yathrib or whether it was Yemen. But with the rise of Islam in the early 7th century, the pressure in that region to, quote, convert or die, end quote, became a sober reality and test of faith for all who live there. Ishmael's descendants are mentioned throughout the Bible. We'll begin to tie those loose ends together with the story of Isaac and Jacob. Until then, something miraculous is happening in the Muslim world. People are coming to Christ in great numbers. And one common experience that many share is that they are encountering Jesus in a dream 
vision, or some other supernatural way. I heard this firsthand from my Lyft driver one day, who just so happened to be a Muslim woman. After sharing that I was Christian, she shared with me about how a man named Jesus visited her in a dream twice, and that it was so real, she left her Muslim faith to follow him. Even though her husband and sons left her, she still chose to follow Jesus. She is now studying the Bible and working two jobs to support herself. I find it incredible, actually, that Jesus continues to interact with the descendants of Ishmael today in the same way that he interacted with Hagar and Ishmael back then. He shows up supernaturally, personally, letting them know that like Hagar, he sees them. And like Ishmael, he hears them and he's healing their hearts supernaturally circumventing the religion of Islam that has grown to two billion followers strong. Our Lord, like in years past, led Hagar and Ishmael to physical water, but now he's bringing their descendants to the living water, himself, and he's doing it by himself. The gospel is the only answer that can heal the wound of separation from the Father. It is the only answer for this family. As Christians, we may not understand what is unfolding in that part of the world, but Scripture is clear. God will restore his flocks. Even Jesus himself says that he has flocks which are not of this fold that he must also bring in, and they will hear his voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that's what's happening. The people in the Middle East having an encounter with Jesus, they are hearing the voice of the true shepherd calling them home. So if you want to pray for the Middle East and Israel, pray for the blind eyes to be opened and the deaf ears to hear the voice of the only one who can save them. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus that brings us back to the family. Whether you're Gentile, Muslim, or otherwise, we can all belong to the family of God. God bless you today. Thank you.